0: Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the
1: Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm a partner in the Herbert Smith Freehills industrial relations team and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Nick Ogilvie. Welcome, Nick.
0: Thank you. Good to be back.
1: Yes, well, you did very well the first time. So, you know, listeners demand a repeat appearance. We all know that's not true, but
0: that's okay. (laughs) I'll take anything.
1: Um, Now, we briefly mentioned in our last episode, Nick, that 2023 is going to be a huge year for industrial relations. And that's already proving to be the case through the implementation of a range of reforms and more coming down the line. But I think what we're seeing this year that's perhaps different to previous years is Industrial relations reform is is very much on the agenda of boards and senior executive teams. We've spent most of our Decembers and Januaries briefing executive teams, CEOs, boards on the secure jobs, better pay reforms. And it's safe to say there's universal interest in this. And for good reason, it is going to have a really serious impact on Australian employers. And unions are already showing that they're ready for these laws, they know about them, they're prepared for them. And we had a number of examples On the day of commencement of the Secure Jobs Better Pay Amending Act of unions already utilizing some of the new powers that were available to them on day one that's That's not an exaggeration so it's clear unions are investing in this they're they're prepared since then we've heard anecdotally that unions are also investing in preparation for the multi-enterprise bargaining regime which will commence June 2023 and you might have seen the report by Ewan Hannon in The Australian on 30th of January this year, explaining the AMW's approach to that preparation and how they anticipate utilising these new laws to drive up terms and conditions across industries for similar work and for, uh, building some greater
0: efficiencies into the enterprise bargaining process. You just see in that article that the AMW is quite clear that they've give it a go at different industries and see how it works, and if it works, then try things out as they go along. So they're learning as well as employers at the same time.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, that I've got a link to that article on my LinkedIn page for those that are interested and want to have a look, and it's, it's definitely worth checking out. But it's clear that unions are getting ready for this, and because of that, I mean, employers need to be ready as well. And so we thought, We'd spend this uh, episode seven of Inside IR focusing, Nico, on multi-enterprise bargaining, the regime that will commence by no later than June of 2023. And some of the things that employers should start planning for. Why is this important? How will the new regime work? How might employers protect themselves from being drawn in to this new type of enterprise bargaining? What will employers do once they're in the regime? And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of it? So with that in mind, Nick might kick off with you, yep. perhaps giving us a bit of an update on why all this is imp- why is this so important? What is the impact of the new multi-enterprise bargaining laws, and why should employers be concerned?
0: I think it's a big deal, and it's mm. new. Um, it's new for employers and it's new for unions. But the main element of this reform is that it's possibly available in every workplace. So there is exposure for all employers, regardless of the size, union density, to be exposed to multi-employer bargaining systems, multi-employer bargaining regime. So it's important for everyone to think about it, how they would fit into the system. If you get dragged into multi-employer multi enterprise bargaining, then you gotta think about what's the effect of that, not just good faith bargaining obligations, but exposure to protected industrial action, exposure to protected industrial action, which is much broader, with multiple employers taking action at the same time, same time and less control over the bargaining system as well. Um, the other, the other elements of bargaining are still there, so the, the, the Section 240 considerations you know, and the other elements of the bargaining system, which we just in the past haven't gone anywhere, which is this new regime where employers can be forced into a multi-enterprise bargaining system where previously they weren't used to that process.
1: Yeah, and the, I mean, the key point being that the new elements of this is that employers can be forced. Yeah. I mean, that was only very limited capacity under the old laws to force employers to engage in multi-enterprise bargaining with other unrelated employers. And again, for the first time, protected industrial action will be ta- able to be taken in support of that bargaining. So they're really significant changes. And I think, I mean, in the briefing sessions we've been running for clients over the last couple of months, Nico, what struck me is for a lot of employers, the initial response to this these reforms, the multi-enterprise bargaining regime, is that it's not relevant to them. Uh, I've often been told, Look, great, come and come and talk to us about secure jobs, better pay take us through the amending legislation, but don't worry about spending too much time on multi-enterprise bargaining because it's not relevant to us.
0: So if I'm a client and I come to you and say, you you say that I'm exposed, how am Mm. I exposed to this process?
1: Well, I'm gonna say something relatively controversial, Nico. I I don't think there's an employer in the country that should assume these laws don't apply to them and that they're not potentially at risk of being dragged into multi-enterprise bargaining. I think every employer has at least some risk of being dragged into that process. Why? No, I should say, on this particular podcast, Nico, we'll focus on single, um, yep. single interest authorisation bargaining, that, that stream of multi-enterprise bargaining. We won't touch too much on supported bargaining or cooperative workplace bargaining, um, only because they're less relevant. Cooperative workplaces by consent, yep. so we're not too worried about that. Supported bargaining is, is predominantly for low paid and, and industries where they traditionally haven't engaged in enterprise bargaining. So we'll leave those to one side, but in relation to single interest authorisation bargaining, the tests for determining which employers might be captured by that stream and be subject to an authorisation compelling them to bargain with other employers, those tests are extremely broad, and they will sort of run through them quickly. The employers on the authorisation to bargain together must have clearly identifiable common interests and they must be reasonably comparable, have reasonably comparable operations and business activities. Good lawyer's word, reasonably, put in there. That's right. Well it begs the question, what does all that mean? Now the answer is no one really knows at this point and that's been quite deliberate. There was throughout the course of uh, the Bill's passage through the House of Representatives and the Senate, there were questions asked of uh, Minister Tony Burke specifically in relation to those two tests. Um, because there was some, some commentary from academic circles that perhaps they were ill defined and the yep. boundaries of them weren't clear. Now, the response was, well, we're going to leave that to the Fair Work Commission to determine. Yep. And because of that, the boundaries are rather unclear. But the Act does give a list of three factors that have to be taken into account in determining whether or not that uh, the, the clearly identifiable common interest test has been met. And in the context of single interest authorizations, those three factors are geographic location, nature of the enterprises, including the terms and conditions that apply within them, and the application of regulatory
0: regimes. So if you just go on that list, it's not hard to think of an employer will have another employer in the same geographic location or another employer with similar terms and conditions, nature of the enterprise, particularly a competitor. and and it's quite easy to fall into one of those buckets pretty quickly
1: well that that's exactly my point Nico because I mean you look at those factors and they're not sort of exhaustive Mm. Uh, you could envisage I mean every employer is going to have another employer that's unrelated to them that might fit some of that criteria you might have a labour hire provider or a contractor that's working at the same location at the same site or you might have competitors in the same region engaged in similar work and perhaps on similar terms and conditions. The, the list is almost endless, so those that criteria is potentially quite broad and this is where the first few cases that are run through the Commission on this are going to be super important in setting the boundaries of this. But given the uncertainty, I think the starting assumption for all Australian employers needs to be that there is a risk of being captured by the multi-enterprise bargaining regime. The other problem before we sort of move on, Nico, yes. that most of um, larger employers have is that there's a reverse onus in relation to those two tests. If you're an employer that has more than 50 employees across your group, then you will be presumed to have met those two tests, reasonably comparable operations and business activities and clearly identifiable common interests, unless you prove otherwise. So as a starting position so you, What would you're you in
0: starting position b so i i take employer a and employer b and they do the same thing so that, that's enough to initiate the application to have them join together that's enough to make the application
1: mm-hmm. absolutely and then it will be on the employer there are some other criteria which we'll yep. come to in a minute as well but it'll be on the employer to establish before the commission that the um, their business as compared with the other employers on the list in the yep. application is not reasonably comparable. They don't have clearly identifiable common interests. Their interests are divergent. And, you know, that'll be a, a fairly serious case, there'll need to be
0: submissions and evidence. Can you but just th- imagine how much uh, witness evidence and preparation needs to go into something like that? When In the past, you just rolled into bargaining, now it's actually good to think about all those things up front.
1: It- it'll be substantial. So so really, the only employers that, that can, I suppose, um, be safe from, being dragged into multi-enterprise bargaining those that are clearly excluded are those with less than 20 employees yep. so that's that's been scoped out of, of the multi-enterprise bargaining regime but also those employees in building and construction including civil civil construction there are some exceptions to that but generally speaking building and construction including civil construction
0: I- is not captured by multi-enterprise bargaining just imagine testing the boundaries of what is civil construction and what is building construction, anyway, associated industries that go with that as well?
1: Yeah. Well, there's no doubt going to be cases that, that centre on that particular issue as well. But um, So they will be one to watch. The early cases in the multi-enterprise bargaining regime that come before the Fair Work Commission that set the boundaries on these tests. But it sort of led us to start thinking about, Nico, and, and speaking to some clients about this, how might the unions actually commence the
0: process and, and what does that look like? Well, the starting point is majority support. So you think about in the same way that you would apply for majority support to donation for a single enterprise agreement. Um, for each employer that's going to be involved in the multi-enterprise bargaining um, agreement, each employer needs to have majority support. So you can obviously see where there's highly unionised workforces, it's easy to control, get that sort of vote up. But where it's going to be a lot harder for unions to get that majority support where an employer has only got lower union density numbers going forwards. Um, the same thing applies to the other end, so when the vote comes to be approved the agreement, each employer has to have a majority support of employees voting for the agreement as well. So again, you can see where the union's position will be around really trying to um, get involvement and engagement with the employees, using right of entry tactics to talk to employees, using uh, social media, using general media to try and drum up support for their position. Uh, it's quite back to normal union organising we had in the past. Uh, and it's going to be on enterprise by enterprise basis to try and get enough sort of enough employers together with the majority of employees to go in and support this sort of process?
1: It's a good point on right of entry and engendering in, in sort of employee support for these things because I know the laws don't start until June but we're already anecdotally hearing from clients that there's been a bit of a ramping up in union presence and and right of entries in a whole range of areas. It comes now, back to
0: the old engagement process hmm. it's still the same with the current system about being engaged with the employees a much better chance of having positive outcomes in enterprise bargaining so yeah. the same applies here it's just a it's more stark the reality of it
1: so we've been in light of all of that we've obviously been looking at what are the what are some of the opportunities for employers to reduce the complexity all of, the, of all of this and perhaps look at ways to prevent them from being drawn in to multi-enterprise bargaining regime or at least reduce the risk of that and I mean I think the first port of call on this particular topic Nico is as you mentioned employee engagement yep. because a really important prerequisite for the Fair Work Commission to make the authorisation that compels employers to bargain together is the majority support is required in relation to each employer. Now um, that makes it clear that for those workplaces where there's strong employee engagement great communication between employer and employees. Uh, they feel like they've got someone to actually speak to to flag their concerns and someone that's listening and actually responding to them. We know through experience that it's less likely that those employees are going to sign the petition when it's put yep. in front of them. And they'll, they won't see as, as great a potential benefit in engaging in the multi-enterprise
0: bargaining process. Having I mean, said that, it's not much to lose if I'm an employee, and someone comes with a petition says, "I'm going to bring you better terms and conditions. I'll sign it." And say, so, "Yes." So it's difficult to get over that hurdle.
1: Yeah, look, that's quite right, Nico. But I think this this is a bit different to the old majority support determination petitions that we're a bit more used to. This one is about engaging in multi-enterprise bargaining, not not bargaining per se. Yeah. So really, I mean, employees will be signing a petition declaring their support to engage in multi-enterprise bargaining.
0: And potentially multi-enterprise protected action.
1: That's right. Yep. Now that's instead of potentially nothing, but also instead of single enterprise bargaining at the enterprise. So really, there's some opportunity there for employers if they're already engaging in single enterprise bargaining, engaging constructively, listening to the claims being put to them by the workforce, and that process is working, just seems to me as a matter of logic that even on the employee side there's not a great deal of benefit then in being drawn into the multi-enterprise process so is
0: it is as simple as get a single enterprise agreement up now before the provisions come in is that is that a way around this process well that's the next point so
1: yeah. i mean the first point was really about making sure you have an engaged workforce yep. and look at maybe you get lucky and uh, the unions aren't able to prove majority support of multi-enterprise bargaining the, the easier solution, uh, perhaps not easier, but certainly the, the safer bet, is to make sure you've got an interim agreement, yep. because that is a hard barrier to multi-enterprise bargaining. If you have an interim enterprise agreement covering the relevant employees, then you can't be included on the Fair Work Commission authorisation of that process. Now, because of that, we're increasingly going to see employers starting bargaining earlier, prior to expiry. We we are, we're we're seeing that already. And we're probably going to see uh, more appetite, I guess, on the part of employers to to provide some extra terms and conditions, some extra uh, wages and other things uh, in return for signing up to an earlier deal.
0: So suppose there needs to be some sort of assessment at the employer level, is is it worth giving up those things to avoid multi-enterprise bargaining, or am I be- which, which streamline are better off in one or the other?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. And there's, a, there's necessarily a bit of a trade-off yep. there, but um, in return for an early deal, you do get protection and you retain control. Because I think the one of the biggest concerns arising from the multi-enterprise bargaining provisions for employers is that you are potentially sucked into a process with many other employers that will have different approaches to yep. things. They will have different views about claims that are being put, and they'll have different views about whether and when the agreement should go to vote. And on both sides, on union side and employer side, the way the laws work, there's capacity for any one entity to hold the whole process to ransom.
0: That was my initial reaction when I saw mm. the draft legislation come out. I said, like, how could it possibly be more efficient having more parties involved in a bargaining process? Like it just thinking about it as a concept. It's not not going to be straightforward because you've got multiple people, as you said, with different agendas and different priorities.
1: Yeah, and that's why looking at this from the union's perspective, it's not all upside either, the new multi-enterprise bargaining regime. There will be some unions in relation to some workplaces that would prefer to retain control over that process and and run the usual single enterprise uh, bargaining process that they lead. now, And that's if, what
0: they're comfortable with, that's what they've done in the past, that's, that's what, they're what they used know. To.
1: That's right. So there will be a lot of unions in many cases that, that that's their starting point. Yep. The, the current system's working, we'll stick with it, it gives me control. Now, if they instead apply for a single interest authorisation and kick off the multi-enterprise bargaining process, depending on how they uh, describe the scope of coverage, if it potentially brings in other union eligibility you'll have other unions involved in that process as well. And not necessarily just the local officials and operators they're used to dealing with at their single enterprise negotiation. But it will bring in a whole range of other people. Now, that's where the process starts to become a bit more complicated. And that's not necessarily a benefit, even on the union side. So the point being that it's not all upside for unions either but there is opportunity in employers looking at trying to do earlier deals. And I know doing a new deal before the old one expires is kind of the holy grail. If that's not possible, then at least securing written agreement from the relevant union to renegotiating your existing EA, because that's also enough. That's another hard barrier that protects you from being drawn into this process. But all of that, of course, requires employees to ultimately vote up agreements that yep. uh, alternatively requires the union to be comfortable continuing with the usual single enterprise bargaining process now all of that somewhat outside of employers control yep. um, and so because of that um, there, we might need to look at sort of other options in the event that we're dragged into the process Nico
0: suppose that that's right so what is if you are dragged in and you can't avoid it what is it that you can do I think the first thing is really investing in a protected industrial action strategy and a mitigation strategy how are you going to deal with protected industrial action across multiple employers within your own organization what is it you can put in place there are some steps you can take there might be other things you can't do but really have a proper think about it right at the start because if the process drags on you've got less control as you would normally about having stopping industrial action this is this is a process that involves other parties so what can you do to look after your own business and employers going forwards the second point is more around preparation and knowing your position um, just and proper investment in justifying your position, make sure it's objectively reasonable. So what is it that you, if you end up in an intractable bargaining dispute of the Commission or some other uh, trying to explain the agreement to parties, what is it about what you're putting on the table that's reasonable and should be accepted going forward by a third party, not just your your claims being accepted in total but what is it you, you can get in exchange for what what the unions want what can be offered up instead so you're really investing in that process even more than you would normally because it's again outside of your control uh, so you need to be prepared for that the other one's an interesting point is around uh, understanding your competition law uh, obligations as well so the f- process will be efficient if the employers work together, cooperate together, you get better outcomes, but you need to be understand what you can and can't do in, in that sort of environment. Competitors sitting at a table talking about their their objectives and their plans might not necessarily be might be okay for workplace relations laws, but the competition law might be a concern for them. So actually understand where your the boundaries in that sort of process sort of lies and having a proper understanding before you go into it. That way you can get your proper um, cooperation without stepping on stepping on some other legislation
1: yeah that's that's really important and there will be some crossover there in terms of competition law obligations and what can be disclosed between the bargaining participants so that'll be one to watch so the one thing before we sort of move on to the next topic yeah. Nico, go one thing I wanted to unpack a little bit more is this concept of how many employers are likely to be dragged into this process yeah. now we've had we've heard lots of commentary about how ineffective Uh, This process will be if you have 10, 20, 30 employers at the bargaining table, so to speak. Now, the reality is, in my view at least, you're unlikely to actually have that scenario occur because the unions are much more likely to pick two or three employers, focus on them, not 10, 20, 30 and negotiate a multi-enterprise agreement with that much smaller cohort. Now, one of the reasons that that would be preferred is mentioned before the capacity for one party to hold the process to ransom. Now, on my reading of the legislation, unless all employers commit to putting the agreement to a vote, then uh, it can't go to vote. It requires the endorsement of all employers. Equally, legislation is very clear on this bit, that unless all unions who are engaged in the process provide their written agreement, then equally the employers can't put the agreement to a vote. So even if one union of many hold out on that process and don't give their agreement, then there is no end to the process. There
0: is no vote. It's an inherent impediment to the system discouraging too many parties being involved because it, you won't end up with an outcome at all.
1: That's exactly right. The more the more parties you add to that process, the more likely you're going to end up in that scenario where one or more are holding it to ransom and, and you, you can't reach a conclusion. Actually, I, I should say there's one exception to that through the House of Reps and Senate debates one uh, change to the initial bill that, that was uh, incorporated was this capacity to apply to the Fair Work Commission for an order enabling the agreement to go to vote in the event that all unions uh, weren't providing written consent to do so. So there is there is that avenue, but... I suppose
0: reg- the, the existing provisions about bargaining representatives, non official bargaining process probably are still there as well, having removed yes. bargain, bargaining uh, representatives from the process in the same way you would individual bargaining, reps, you could remove other unions from the process as well?
1: Oh absolutely, there'll be all those opportunities, Um, but I think what all this tells us is that it would be uh, not entirely sensible, I think, to try and initiate a multi-enterprise bargaining process with a large number of employers, because it just won't work and you're more likely to end up in what you've mentioned Nico, the intractable bargaining workplace determination process where the Fair Work Commission arbitrates the outcome to these deals because it just gets too complex, no one can actually find a common way forward and it'll be left to the Commission to determine those outcomes and I think that's where your, your points around justification of, your, of the employer's position, uh, justifiable responses to claims, objective evidence supporting the employer's position being taken in relation to each of them is super important.
0: And you're putting an outcome in a third party so you've got to be able to objectively Justify why you're adopting a position or adopted positions along the way. For the of yeah. bargaining. Um, so, if I'm an employer and I managed to get out of multi enterprise bargaining and I'm uh, whatever those steps were, does that mean I'm free? Does it mean I'm safe going forwards?
1: So, say for example, you've got an interim EA yeah. and uh, you've noticed that maybe your competitors have dragged been dragged into a multi enterprise bargaining process and an EA is made, yeah. um, are you safe? I mean, the answer is no. Uh, and this is, this is where some of the tactics are going to come into play. Like I mentioned before, Nico, I think it's more likely we're going to see smaller multi-enterprise agreement uh, processes where there's maybe two, maybe three employers that are listed in the application for the authorisation. Because once that EA is made, the union can, after the making of the agreement, apply to rope in additional employers that's an old
0: concept roping in, wrapping into awards has been around for a while but that's not right in terms of bargaining yeah but
1: a similar concept yep. uh, there's the capacity to apply post the bargaining process to rope in now uh, pretty much the same tests apply you, you still can only apply to rope in employers that meet the clearly identifiable common interest tests reasonably comparable businesses it requires majority supportive employees etc so all the same tests apply But there's a great deal of benefit to the unions in doing that because you're not dragging in more employers into the actual bargaining process. You're actually not giving them a say even on the terms and conditions of the deal. They're either roped in or they're not. So I think that's an even greater risk to employers than being roped into the multi-enterprise bargaining process itself. It's a much greater risk to be roped in afterwards where if you're roped in, you've actually got no say on the content.
0: You're stuck with the content that was agreed by the competitors.
1: You are. And, and that's why, so continuing to make um, enterprise agreement deals prior to the expiry of the old and maintaining an interim agreement, that's all well and good. But it could be only a short-term fix mm. for this because eventually the next agreement you've made expires and then that one will expire, you'll do another one. And so you'll forever be in this cycle trying to chase uh, maintenance of your interim agreements and it's uh, not difficult to envisage that one day uh, it will expire, you won't be able to get a new de- new deal up, and you might be the subject of one of these roping in applications.
0: And at a really basic level, you can see that even similar businesses with the same sort of operations tend to have different terms and conditions of employment apply. Things that are specific to the way they operate, you end up being encumbered with someone else's deal that was done to try and apply it to your workforce going forwards, which may or may not work for your business. That's right, yeah.
1: and It also then raises the question, if if you accept the fact that it's going to be far more beneficial for unions to look at smaller multi-enterprise deals, then there's a question there as to which employers they will focus on. Mm. Which employers of the group of employers in a geographical location or uh, in a particular type of enterprise or subject to a particular regulatory regime, of that broader list of employers, which ones are they going to focus on and choose to add to their application for the authorisation. Which ones are they going to drag into the bargaining process and which ones will they leave to later yeah. and rope them in after the event? Now, that's that's a really important decision, I think, on the part of the unions. And you could perhaps foresee them uh, trying to bargain with those that they might perceive to be more willing participants in the multi-enterprise bargaining process. Perhaps those with
0: more favourable terms and conditions that have less to lose through the process or well that's right they can even up the market by agreeing to more favorable terms and conditions knowing that there'll be some arrangement with the union going forwards that the unions will drag in their competitors so that they might be ahead at the start, but once the wrapping process goes through, everyone's on the same level playing field.
1: Which touches on a question that we've been asked quite frequently already, and that is, is there some upside in these multi-enterprise bargaining laws for those employers that are already paying top of market? What do you you think about that,
0: Nico? I think that's right. There is, to a degree, because you are protected because you're not seen as the the target or the, the... the opportunity to improve terms and conditions of employment because you're already at that level. However, having said that, you can imagine that it's even if you are at the top level, there's always scope to push up higher, mm-hmm. to provide to be to have better terms and conditions sought against you. Uh, and as he said earlier, there is a there's a real risk that um, unions will target a specific employer paying at that high level and then seek to rope in other employees into that into that level of terms and conditions going forwards. Yeah.
1: Now, that's a really good point, something to think about. Uh, Personally, I don't see much upside in in Mm. the process. Um, Rather, what's obvious is that I think unions will have a lot more leverage than compared to what they're used to in the single enterprise bargaining regime. I mean, the the pure fact that they've got the capacity to, I think, force employers into this process, the process is plainly going to be more complicated. It will be harder to reach deals. Employers will be subject to um, more intense protected industrial action because it, it could be carried across multiple other employers that also has an impact on your operations. So, for example, supply chains yep. or, or subsectors or industries. And so, you know, there's there, there's real downside in that. And I think what we'll see more likely is employers starting to recognise that downside and being incentivised to offer even more favourable conditions in the single enterprise
0: space. To avoid this whole process, and you've got these the, the spectra for another podcast, but the spectra of same job, same pay, coming into the end of the year, overlaying that whole process as well. So.
1: Well, that's the funny thing because I, I think if the unions use the full force of these laws um, and you know um, actually rely on some of the advantages that they present, then I don't think you need same job, sure. same pay. Uh, that that will all take care of itself because there's a, a lot of opportunity here for unions to. Um, to re- really increase the efficiency of enterprise bargaining. And in fact, that's one of the points made in the article that we referred to at the start of this episode. I think many unions are seeing this as an opportunity to increase their reach and improve efficiency. Instead of having to go out and do 30 yep. different enterprise agreement deals at 30 different enterprises, you, you do one and you do it with two or three employers and then apply to rope in the other 28 after the event. I mean, it's just far more efficient.
0: You need less organisers for that sort of process than you
1: would? Less organisers, less cost, less time, greater outcomes because there's much greater leverage and um, you're more likely going to be able to convince employers to offer a bit more in that process. Okay. So there, there are some real challenges there and, and I think um, it's going to be particularly problematic for those that aren't prepared for for the new regime when it does commence in june
0: so before we finish what's the role of the commission in this whole process what's is it expanded Is it decreased what's what's going to be their involvement
1: well it's certainly expanded just by virtue of the um, the broader scope of their power to order the commencement of multi-enterprise bargaining but i think that their impact on this process will be twofold one It'll be very important to watch how the fair work commission approaches the uh, early few applications that are made for single interest authorizations
0: because we'll be surprised to see the new president on some of those applications yeah
1: well i, th- I think that's right yep. i mean they're, they're really going to set the tone for how the fair work commission interprets clearly identifiable common interests yep. and reasonably comparable business operations that that's really the uh, the big question in all of this. What, what's the boundary of those concepts? How broad are they? Are they as broad as perhaps where are suggesting they might be or uh, are they narrower? That's the, the first sort of degree of impact that we'll see from the Fair Work Commission. But I think the other is when these processes end up in intractable bargaining, which I- inevitably they will, how will the Fair Work Commission approach that process? Yeah. Whether it involves two, three, 10, 20 different employers how will that process be managed and what terms and conditions will will ultimately be set by the Fair Work Commission in circumstances where you'll inevitably be operating from a starting position of having very different conditions in each of those different employers. And I think that's gonna be fascinating to watch. Even the logistics of that, not to mention the actual
0: outcomes,
1: are going to be really, really important.
0: Because so it's not just as simple as saying, well, it'll be the same as the old workplace determination process or the old 170MX arbitration process. Because you, as you said, you've got multiple employers to be involved and a commission trying to find a way through that is reasonable and objective outcome for employees across those multiple businesses. So it's, it's, it's the old system ramped up to be even more complicated.
1: Yeah. So look, I, I think to wrap things up, the, the summary, the takeaway, is that unions are going to have much greater power through these multi-enterprise bargaining laws whether they exercise them or not it's going to be an extra tool in their toolkit they will use to encourage employers to sign up to single enterprise agreements with the threat of multi-enterprise bargaining hanging over their head but also uh, it will be used by unions to commence multi-enterprise bargaining rounds but the big question is where will they focus where will they start where will they invest the time and resources to uh, running these applications for single interest authorizations? I think that's that's the big question for us. So there's a lot to think about and plan for ahead of commencement of these laws. It's gonna come up pretty quick, Nico. It's only a couple of months away. So. No, that's right. I do encourage all employers who are listening to this podcast to, to give it some thought. And as always, we love to hear feedback on Inside IR. If you've got any feedback on this podcast or ideas for future episodes, then please get in touch, comment on LinkedIn, or send us a direct email to insideirhsf.com. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Inside IR.